Um, so our talk this morning will be given by Father Jamie McMoran. Um, the bio that I've been given starts with, like his hero, Father Dealey. Father McMoran attended St Andrews University. I'm not sure if he wrote that himself. Um, he studied for the priesthood at the Scots College in Rome, uh, where he gained a license in the sacred liturgy. Um, <laughs> he is currently a priest of the Archdiocese of St Andrews in Edinburgh, and he is in his second curacy, working as the assistant priest at Edinburgh Cathedral. Um, and his talk is entitled, The Eucharist as the Real Presence of Christ. Thank you very much, Mary. I don't know if Father Dealey wrote that introduction anyway. He is my hero. We all, we all need a role model. Uh, it's slightly daunting giving this uh, last talk of, of an excellent conference. Uh, when the Feast of Corpus Christi was established uh, in the Universal Church, Pope Urban IV commissioned the two most distinguished theologians of the day uh, to collaborate in providing the liturgical texts uh, for the new feast, the prayers uh, and the hymns and the readings and so on. Uh, and the story goes that when the time came for them to present their work uh, to the Holy Father, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas went first uh, and St. Bonaventure, who's the other theologian, sat and listened. And the story goes that as the angelic doctor uh, gave his prayers and he listened to the beauty of his words, St. Bonaventure just tore his to shreds. At the final, as the final speaker of this conference, having listened to these talks, I know a little bit how St. Bonaventure feels. Uh, <laughs> We've been blessed uh, over these past few days, uh, not only in the excellent talks that we've heard, but also in the inspiring preaching, which has helped us uh, to grow deeper in our knowledge and love of Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. Uh, many of the speakers and the preachers have used uh, St. John's Gospel, and especially the sixth chapter of his Gospel, which gives the subtitle uh, to this talk, uh, and to which we'll return uh, in a few moments. But when I was praying about this talk and thinking about this talk and, and how I feel at this stage of these conferences, the gospel scene which came to my mind was from a different gospel, the end uh, of the gospel of St. Luke uh, and the road to Emmaus. Uh, at the very end uh, of that gospel, the disciples, uh, their hearts burning within them from the Lord's exposition of salvation history, plead with him to stay with them, stay with us, abide with us and remain with us. And as we reach the end of this conference, our eyes uh, having been opened through the preaching of the word, uh, the breaking of the bread, which is his holy body and blood, his holy, the holy companionship of our fellow disciples, that we feel our own hearts to have been filled with his presence over these few days. And so we ask the Lord to remain with us. We can find it difficult to leave. We don't want to go back to our ordinary parishes. And so we can ask the Lord who we've encountered in a profound way in, in these days to remain with us. Immediately as they recognize him in that story, the Lord vanishes from their sight. A few days after that, he ascends uh, into heaven. And in St. Matthew's version of the ascension, his ascension is accompanied by a promise uh, to which Father William alluded on, on that first evening, that he would remain with them always uh, until the end of the age. It's clear that if he is to be faithful to that promise, then the way that he would abide with his disciples would be in some way different, would be in some way different to the way that he had been with them on earth, but nonetheless in continuity with him, that it would be the same Jesus who would be with them. His way of being present will be different, but it will still be truly him. As Mary mentioned in her introduction, 
I'm currently the curate in St Mary's Cathedral in Edinburgh, uh, together with Father Patrick Burke, known probably to, to many of you. Uh, in August, I was only a few months into my, my time at the cathedral when Father Patrick left to go on his very well-earned uh, summer holiday. I was a little bit nervous about being left in the cathedral on my own, but Father Patrick, in his, his usual style, pointed out that Emmanuel Macron was only a few years older than me and he was running France. So <laughs> the, 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 the care of a small cathedral shouldn't, sh shouldn't be beyond my capabilities. Uh, and so, as his aeroplane took off from Edinburgh Airport together with Father Louise and Father David on their way to Benidorm, uh, I, I felt something like the apostles must have felt on the day of the Lord's ascension. I, I returned to Edinburgh rejoicing and praising God. Uh, but, but also with a sense of what now? What do I do now? I, I knew, of course, that the Monsignor would return. Uh, pro <laughs> probably not on clouds of glory, but certainly an unexpected hour, and happy the servant whom the master finds ready. And he had left me rather detailed instructions on how I was to occupy myself in his absence. Uh, I knew him well enough that the question, what would the Monsignor do, would not be impossible to answer. And I knew very well the commandments that he'd laid down, governing the dishwasher, the lights and the stairs, the Tesco home delivery order and the house. The house were full of pictures of him with Pope Benedict and with Pope Francis, notes that he'd written, Monsignor Burke's microphone, underlined, <laughs> and so on. But he himself wasn't there. There were lots of signs of his presence, there were lots of reminders of his presence, but he wasn't there. If anyone were to ask me during that time, where is Father Patrick? I'd have to say, he's not here. The Lord is not absent from his church in the way that Father Patrick was absent from it during that time in the cathedral. The Lord has not gone on holiday to some distant place to return at a later date, hoping that we don't make too much of a hash of it in the meantime. The Lord is present. The Lord is very near to us. And he's present, of course, in various ways. He's present to us in the wonders of the world that he's made and the traces of the Logos, which we can discern in, in the beauty and the order of our world. He's present in his revelation, in the commandments that he's given us, and in the authoritative way that he continues to teach us uh, through his church. He's present in those in need, in the least of our brothers and sisters, and he's present to us in our prayer, in which we can really and truly connect with him and speak with him and be spoken to by him. He's present through his actions, through his healing and his binding and his strengthening and his confirming and his washing and so on uh, in the sacraments. All, all of these are real presences. But the Holy Eucharist, the thing that we've been talking about over these past few days is something different. The Holy Eucharist is something uniquely important in the life of the church because the Holy Eucharist is Jesus himself. Jesus himself truly present among us, truly present in the midst of his church. It's not a reminder of his presence, it's not a symbol of his presence, it's not a sign of his presence. It's him. He's there, not in a spiritual way, not in a warm, fuzzy feeling on the inside, but substantially, physically, tangibly, and even edibly present in the midst of his church, as truly present as he was in Bethlehem, and in Galilee and on Calvary, 
he is present in the blessed sacrament. Or to say it better, the blessed sacrament is Jesus. Jesus himself made present, yes, until the end of the age. This talk is not the fourth step uh, in the story. This is not the cheese and crackers course at the end of a theological feast. This is not the tying up of the doctrinal loose ends and the salvaging of the leftovers making up a little packed lunch for us to take on the bus. Rather, this doctrine of the real presence is what holds all of these other talks together. It's what unites everything together. The doctrine of the real presence is what gives everything else that we've been saying its force. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross that Father Stephen was talking about last night is made truly present on our altars in every church uh, where we attend mass because the bread and wine that's offered by the priest is the same body that hung on the cross on that first Good Friday. The mass is our participation, our communion in that sacrifice in that Eucharistic banquet, because in Holy Communion, we don't receive a symbol of Jesus. We don't receive a reminder of him. We receive him. We receive his body, blood, soul, and divinity, the body and blood of the incarnate Son of God. As the Easter hymn puts it, he himself is the feast that is offered to the wedding guests. Because the bread and wine that we receive from the priest are precisely no longer bread and wine, but the most holy body and blood of the Lamb of God, once slain, who now lives forever. And as Father Dealey was telling us all the way back on, on Thursday night, this was always his plan. This was the culmination and the fulfillment of a plan that is older than the cosmos itself, because the cosmos was made for Jesus and finds its fulfillment in him. The whole of creation was made for the incarnation. As Father Dealey said, the whole of creation was waiting for Christmas. Matter was made to be united with spirit. Humanity was made to be united with divinity and creation was made to be united with its creator. So likewise, we can say that the whole of creation was made for the Eucharist. Jesus didn't take bread and wine at the Last Supper as convenient happenstance reminders of his body and blood. Rather, as Father Hugh said in, in answer to one of those questions, God created food and he created specifically bread and wine with the Eucharist in mind. He created them so that one day the incarnate Son of God at supper with his friends would take them in his hands and offer them to the Father, raising them to the glory of becoming his body and his blood. And as Father Dewey showed us very beautifully, we see the unfolding of this plan of God through the material development of the natural world and the spiritual development of God's people as they are prepared for the incarnation. In the pages of what we call the, the Hebrew scriptures, we see many preparatory and prophetic foreshadowings of, of this fulfillment of God, God's plan. Uh, the fathers of the church love to explore uh, these types uh, and, and, and their biblical preaching and commentaries are, are, are full uh, of these allusions, these, these, these signs of Jesus hidden uh, in the pages of, of, of the Old Testament. Father Richard and Father Stephen have both uh, alluded to many of these already, how the various meals of the Old Testament were signposts which pointed beyond themselves to the Last Supper and, and to the Mass. How also the various sacrifices of the Old Covenant were preparing the way for the one sacrifice of the New and Eternal Covenant which would be established by Jesus. I'd like here, though, uh, to point out that God 
had prepared the way not only for the one and perfect sacrifice which, which made possible the festive meal, but also that we see in the pages of the Old Testament his desire to be present among his people, his desire uh, to, be, to be truly with them. Uh, this too didn't come out of nowhere. This too had been prepared from the beginning. The God of Israel accompanied the people of Israel uh, on the Exodus, not only by the manna that they ate, which, which Father Richard was, was talking us about, but by some mysterious physical manifestation of his presence, which was known as the Shekinah, a, a term uh, which alludes to God's glorious presence in some way being, being physically manifest. And this was a localized presence. You could point to it, you could say, there he is, much in the same way that we can say that of Jesus in the Eucharist. And it was localized, first of all, in the tabernacle, significant word for obvious reasons, the, the tent of meeting, which was pitched in the center of the camp during the wanderings of the people, and which later came to rest more permanently uh, in the temple, in, in the Holy of Holies. And the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Ezekiel saw in vision the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah, entering the temple and filling it with his presence, making the temple the place where God met his people and his people could meet him. They also saw, as a result of sin, the glory of the Lord departing from the temple and the temple destroyed, a catastrophic disaster in the, in the history of the people. And in the time of Jesus, although the temple had been rebuilt, the glory cloud had not yet returned. There was a sense of incompleteness, a sense that the exile still wasn't over yet, that there was still another step, that God's presence wasn't there in the way that it had been. There was a sense of uneasiness, that things were not quite as, as they should be. And the later prophets looked forward to the return of the Lord to the temple, that the Lord would one day return in glory and put an end to that time of exile. We know where this is going. All of this comes to its fulfillment in the Gospels. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, he promised that she would conceive the body of Christ. How? By the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. Literally, that she would be covered by the glory cloud, the presence of the Lord, so that she herself would become the new Ark of the Covenant, a new temple of the Most High, because the one now contained within her womb was the Holy One itself. The Christmas season in the, the traditional Roman rite ends with this event, it ends with the feast uh, of the presentation. And it's a tremendous feast. If you read the prayers uh, and the hymns associated with that feast, it's, it's really quite spectacular because what we're celebrating is the God of Israel returning to the temple, returning in a different way and, and filling it once more with his presence, not in a fiery cloud, but in a body, in the body of a little child held in the arms of his mother. And what does Simeon say, that, that canticle that we say at Compline? At last, my eyes have seen what those prophets long to see, the glory of Israel, the revelation to the Gentiles. My eyes have now seen what Isaiah and Ezekiel saw in the far off distance, now come to luminous fulfillment in the form of a little child. The glory cloud, the, the Shekinah, will return again in St. Luke's Gospel in the event of the Transfiguration, when a cloud of glory once more descends upon the Lord. And what does St. Peter suggest? He suggests that he builds some tents, that he builds tabernacles that would in some way perpetuate this theophany, would in some way make permanent this appearance of the Lord's glory. 
commentators and preachers are so keen uh, to dismiss stupid old Peter, you know, getting it wrong as usual. But he doesn't get it wrong. I think he gets it right. He gets it exactly right. His insight is exactly in continuity with the development of salvation history. God does intend to dwell with us on the holy mountain. God does intend to be tabernacled in the midst of his people. But what St. Peter doesn't see is that God has already done that, that God has already done in a far better way than David or Solomon or Peter could ever have done. God has already built a tent for his son because Jesus' body is itself the tabernacling of God, the dwelling of God in our midst. And that tabernacling would be perpetuated for all of human history in the Holy Eucharist in every Catholic church. At the end of that scene, at the end of that account of the transfiguration, the cloud lifted, the glory cloud lifted, and they saw only Jesus. It's a beautiful line. In Jesus, they saw everything. They saw only Jesus. And yet in him, they saw the fullness of God's glory dwelling perfectly among us. And St. John surely has this scene in mind in the prologue of his gospel when he tells us that the word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory among us. The glory of the only begotten son of God, the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and full of truth. The Greek word for dwelt literally means pitched his tent. It literally means was tabernacled among us. And Pope Benedict notes that the, the Greek word skene at, at the root of that verb tabernacled, it's very close to the Hebrew word shekinah, the same uh, consonants, and draws the conclusion at which St. John and St. Luke surely intended us to arrive. Pope Benedict says, Jesus himself is the shekinah through whom God is present among us. St. John is clearly telling us that the eternal desire of God to live among his people is contained in its fullness in the tabernacle of Jesus' humanity, united with the eternal word. He has robed himself in the flesh and the blood given him by his blessed mother. But in talking about the enfleshment of the word, as Father Nick talked about in his homily on Thursday night, St. John is not only talking about the incarnation in the womb of the Blessed Virgin and the appearing of Christ in his human birth. He's also pointing us ahead to the sixth chapter of his own gospel, which we've already heard many times, where the whole debate revolves precisely around his flesh and his blood, which he describes in the title of this talk as real food and real drink given to the people to eat and to drink. He is the living bread which is come down from heaven, bestowed by the Father as a gift to a hungry and wandering world. As the other speakers have said, he identifies himself with this bread which is given to his people. But Jesus' sermon that day in the synagogue at Capernaum didn't get the rave reviews that Father Nick's homily got. The people there that day weren't saying, what a clever idea, I wish this guy was our rabbi. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Those who heard Jesus' sermon that day were scandalized by them, and many left him. St. John tells us that many of the disciples turned back that day and no longer walked with him. They shared the squeamishness that we've already discussed in these accusations of cannibalism and a hundred times more than we feel them because the Jews, don't forget, were forbidden from eating flesh and blood, even of animals, never mind uh, of, of a human being. Some of the disciples walked away, turned their back on Jesus and no longer walked with them. 
So of course, Jesus calls them back. And he explains that the bread he's talking about is only a symbolic reminder of his presence. There's no need uh, to worry about that. He's only speaking metaphorically, just as he'd done many times before, that of course they can actually eat his body and his blood, except that he doesn't. He lets them walk away because they've understood him correctly, that he really did mean it. He turns to his disciples and he turns to each one of us uh, here today. And he says, do you also wish to go away? And there's, there's something painfully beautiful in the Lord's vulnerability in that moment, in the total respect that he has for our human freedom, uh, our freedom that would allow us to walk away from his real presence, would allow us to ignore him and disrespect him and unappreciate him, fail to appreciate him as, as, as so many do in the Eucharist. He doesn't compel us. All he can do is beseech us, look us in the eye and ask us to remain with him. Will you also leave me, he asks. And Bishop Robert Barron says that we can sense in that moment that something momentous and of far-reaching importance has happened in that moment. Bishop Barron writes, one senses that we are poised here on a fulcrum, that a standing or falling point has been reached, that somehow being a disciple of Jesus is intimately tied up with how one stands in, in regards to the Eucharist. Father Holloway goes further still in suggesting, this is a quotation from Father Holloway, it's hard to resist the surmise that Judas's own apostasy, which would be played out, let's not forget, on the very night of the Last Supper, dated from the loss of faith on that occasion. Father Holloway suggests that Judas's betrayal began at that moment in Capernaum. In any case, Peter is the one who responds with the faith of the church. Peter is the one who responds with the church's profession of faith in the divinity of Christ and in his real presence in the Eucharist. He says very simply, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. In St. John's theology, the explicit confession of the divine identity of Jesus as the Holy One of God in our midst is inseparable from his confession of faith in the Eucharist as truly his body and his blood. The two go together. When one is lost, eventually the other will go too. A few weeks later, St. Peter and St. John will be gathered together with the Lord and the other disciples in the upper room on Mount Zion, in the heart of Jerusalem. And Jesus will take bread and wine into his hands and say, this is my body. He'll take wine in his hands and say, this is my blood. Those words, in the definitions of the Council of Trent will come to represent what is technically called the form of the sacrament of the Eucharist. In missiles, they're often printed in, in capital letters. It's a warning to priests who are foolish enough to mess around with them. The priest is instructed to say them clearly and carefully with head bowed because they are so sacred. Every word here is important. Our Lord, it doesn't waste words and, and certainly not here in this moment for which he was born, this moment for which he came into the world. He says, this is my body. He doesn't say, here is my body, as in some way my body and blood are present here along with this bread and wine. As the hymn puts it so confusingly, I am with you in this bread and wine. He doesn't say, this bread is like my body. Neither does he, as he might well have said, this bread represents my body, or this symbolizes my body, or this is a reminder of my body and my blood. The language that he uses is as simple as it is unambiguous. 
This, this which I am holding now in my hands, which looks and feels and tastes like bread, which was indeed bread until this very moment, this is my body, this is my blood. And the history of Catholic theology of, of the Eucharist is an attempt to deepen St. Peter's confession of faith in those, in those words of Jesus at Capernaum and Jesus' words at the Last Supper. When our Lord says, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink, what does he mean? And the, the Protestant claim that the medieval Catholic Church invented uh, the doctrine of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist is simply without foundation. To paraphrase Newman, we see that when open-minded Protestants immerse themselves in the early history of the church, they sooner or later cease to be Protestants because they discover that the interpretation given uh, to these verses by the fathers of the church is the same profession of faith that the Catholic Church has made uh, from the time of the apostles until today. Writing around the year 107, perhaps even before the New Testament, some of the books of the New Testament had been written, St. Ignatius of Antioch wrote, the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his goodness raised up again. In the middle of the same century, around the year 155, St. Justin Martyr said of the Eucharist, for not as common bread nor common drink do we receive these, but since Jesus Christ, our, our Saviour, was made incarnate by the word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught, this is something that goes even further back, the food which has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nourished is both the flesh and blood of that incarnated Jesus. You could multiply these examples. There's pages and pages and pages from the early Christian world from every century of undivided Christendom and their witness to the same Catholic faith is identical. St. Epiphanius, the fourth century Cypriot bishop, sums it up well when he says very simply, we see that the Savior took the bread and wine in his hands as it is in the gospel when he was reclining at supper and giving thanks, he said, this is really me. This is really me. That is what Jesus is saying to us at the moment of institution. This is really me. This bread and this wine is me. It's really Jesus. And as the centuries progress, the church in this aspect of her teaching, as, as in many other areas, changes in its expression. It develops. But as in all authentic developments of doctrine, the apostolic teaching is not changed, but is rather clarified and explained and reaffirmed. And often this comes about in moments of crisis, moments when the faith uh, is being denied or, or being questioned in some way. And we see this, for example, there are many examples in the history of the church. See the example in the errors of Berengarius of Tours, an 11th century monk, who taught that in the Eucharist, there is an essential difference between the historical body of Jesus, born of the Virgin and ascended into heaven, and the body that now appears on our altars. He said that Jesus Christ was truly present in, in, the, in Holy Communion, but it was a, a spiritual presence, that the power of Jesus was present in the Eucharist that somehow Jesus' spiritual presence exists alongside the bread and the wine, which nonetheless remain bread and wine. So when we receive Holy Communion, we receive both bread and wine and the spiritual presence of Jesus in our hearts. We often hear uh, language uh, similar to that. And the church, like family fortune, says, uh, wrong. That is not what we find in John 6. That's not what we find in the fathers of the church. That's not what the Catholic Church 
has always and everywhere believed. Once again, as at Capernaum, Peter speaks through his successor, Pope Gregory VII, who called a synod in Rome to clarify the church's perennial teaching. And the post-synodal document, so to speak, concluded with the following uh, profession of faith proclaimed by a repentant Berengarius. I believe interiorly and profess publicly that the bread and wine which are placed on the altar through the mystery of the sacred prayer and the words of our Redeemer are substantially changed into the true, proper, and life-giving flesh and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. After the consecration, it is the true body of Christ which was born to the Virgin and which hung on the cross as an offering for the salvation of the world and which sits at the right hand of the Father. And it is the true blood of Christ which was poured forth from his side. And Christ is present not merely by virtue of the sign and power of the sacrament, but in his proper nature and true substance. This I believe, and I will not teach any more against this faith. So help me God and the Holy Gospel of God. Excellent. You, <laughs> you'll notice that in that profession of faith, uh, the word that's used is substance. It's a very significant word uh, in Catholic theology, a word derived uh, from classical metaphysics and had already been used uh, for several centuries in explaining uh, the doctrine uh, of the Blessed Trinity. The that profession of faith says that the bread and wine are changed substantially into the body and blood of Jesus. And the Council of Trent, in, in, in opposition to the er errors of Protestantism, and which is quoted verbatim in our, in our own catechism, the catechism that we use to this day, repeats and emphasizes this terminology. The church teaches that the consecration of the bread and wine effects of the change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and that the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. And the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called this change transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, great Scrabble word, if you're playing Scrabble over the Christmas holidays. At the words of institution, there's a change of substance. A change of substance takes place, a change that takes place not at the level of appearances perceptible to the senses, but at the level of the substance, the substance of the thing, what it, it most essentially is. As fascinating as it would be, we don't have time uh, here to go in to the history of the way that term substance has journeyed uh, from the world of Aristotelian philosophy, taken up in medieval and scholastic theology, and then synthesized by Father Holloway uh, with the developments of modern physics. If you'd like to find out more, you can ask a difficult question to Father Hugh McKenzie. I'm hoping that he's now here. Yeah, there he's there. So you can ask him. Uh, or you can look up for yourself in Father Holloway's, uh, the first volume of his Perspectives uh, in Philosophy. Uh, suffice it for the moment to say that in the case of the Eucharist, the Church distinguishes between what a thing really is and how it appears. In the ordinary course of things, that we make judgments about things by the way that they appear. If something has four legs, wears a collar, likes to chase a stick, barks and wags its tail when it's happy, there's a good chance that it's a dog. If it has feathers, swims around in a pond and likes to eat bread and goes quack, it's probably a duck. If it has a slightly hunted look in its eyes, spends long hours in the chapel, owns an extensive collection of lamb's wool jumper, and likes to talk about the liturgy and church politics, it's probably a seminarian. Uh, <laughs> usually, but not always, uh, our senses can be relied upon to tell us what a thing is. We can look at it and we can tell what it is, but not with the Eucharist. In the case of the Eucharist, although what we see before us looks like bread 
and feels like bread and smells like bread and tastes like bread, it is not bread, but it's the body of Jesus. St. Thomas Aquinas says in that beautiful hymn that we sing at benediction, in this case, in this case our senses are deceived, but yet we know the truth of what is before us because it, we know that with a knowledge that's even more sure because it comes from the words of Jesus himself. Jesus himself, not our, our bodily senses, tell us what this is. Jesus says through the words of the priest, this is my body. Truth himself speaks truly or there's nothing true. It's from the words of Jesus spoken at the Last Supper and by the priest at the Mass that we derive our certainty of his presence in the Eucharist. Jesus says, this is my body. But to be clear, not simply because they provide an accurate description of a state of affairs, like someone looking outside and saying it's raining or looking at a car and saying that car is red. The difference is that it's the words of Jesus that bring about the miracle. It's the words of Jesus that bring about the change uh, in substance. In that sense, they're much more like the words of Alan Sugar on The Apprentice when he says, you're fired. You are fired <laughs> precisely because he has spoken those words, because he is the authority uh, to make them true. It's a statement that comes true because he says it. It's the same with Jesus. It's the same with God, in fact, all throughout the Bible. God, who has supreme authority over his creation, has the, the power to bring things into being and even to change their being by the power of his words. It's in fact how the author of the book of Genesis precise, uh, describes the very moment of creation. God said, and it was so. St. John takes this up when he talks about the word who was in the beginning with God and through whom all things came to be, the word of God. And again and again in the Gospels, Jesus will speak in this way, in calming the storms, in healing those at the point of death, and in raising uh, his friend Lazarus. His words have authority, the, word, the authority of the word made flesh, and even the wind and the waves, even the natural world, even the world of matter, obey the voice of God. As we've been saying, these miracles are not random displays of divine power, sort of messianic fireworks display. Rather, when God speaks in this way, the original creation is being restored and being brought to its, its original purpose. So when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, it's not the words of a prophet. It's not the words of a gifted teacher or an exceptionally holy person. They're the words of the creative word made flesh, fulfilling the divine plan, even, even as they're spoken. Words which have the power to create and to affect reality at its most profound level. St. Ambrose of Milan says, the power of the blessing prevails over that of nature because by the blessing, nature itself is changed. Could not Christ's word, which can make from nothing what did not exist, change existing things into what they were not before? God can speak galaxies into existence. It's not beyond him to turn the bread and the wine into his body and his blood. That's why by the way, at the moment of the consecration, and indeed whenever he speaks sacramentally, the priest speaks in the person of Christ, in, in his name, in the first person. He doesn't say, this is the body of Jesus. He says, this is my body, because he speaks at that moment with the authority of Christ, the only authority by which uh, this miracle or any miracle can come about. In the Eucharist, Jesus is present substantially. He's present in a real way. All of this is, is getting a bit much. Let's bring it down 
uh, to the level of practicalities. What does all of this mean uh, to you and me? First of all, it means that we have to take uh, the Eucharist seriously. I think I'm preaching to the choir with this. We have to prepare ourselves very carefully uh, to receive Holy Communion. And we have to ask ourselves whether I, at this particular moment, in my relationship with Jesus, I'm ready to receive him. When I was at a university, I had an Anglican friend uh, who was always extremely offended when I told her that she couldn't receive Holy Communion when she came to Mass, as she occasionally did. And she said, but in my church, anyone can receive communion. And I said, with love and respect, if I believed what you do about the Eucharist, then that would be fine with me as well. But we don't. We believe something differently. If the Eucharist is a symbol of inclusion, of table fellowship, and of all that lovely stuff, then of course anyone can receive Holy Communion. If it were merely a symbol of Jesus, then there would be no problem. But it isn't. It's Jesus himself. It's Jesus regardless of whether we believe it or not. But this, this doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. It, precisely why it matters all the more. Why only those who believe in him and who are in a committed relationship with him and who are prepared to give him insofar as we can the welcome and the worship that he deserves that can receive him. So we have to prepare ourselves for that moment. First of all, by entering into a committed covenant relationship with him through baptism, by living faithfully in relationship to him and to his church, by confessing any and every freely made decision of ours that breaks that relationship. The, churches, the church obliges us to fast for at least an hour before we receive Holy Communion. That, yes, that is still a thing, as I explained to one of the people in my high school not so long ago. You might not believe it, having listened to me for all this time, but an hour is not a long time. Fasting, <laughs> fasting is an excellent way of increasing our hunger for God, of feeling in our bodies our need for him to fill us and to satisfy us. Then, for disposing ourselves to, for, to receive Holy Communion. This means uh, arriving in good time for Mass, of laying aside everything else, laying aside everything else, and reminding ourselves that regardless of the beauty or otherwise of the architecture or of the music or of the inspirational value or otherwise of the preaching, that Jesus is really present there, that Jesus is, is really there among us. In this or that moment, I'm the paralytic laid before him. I'm Mary of Bethany sitting at his feet. I'm St. John the Evangelist listening to the beat of his sacred heart. He's really there. It's a chance for us to make an act of faith, of addressing him, that prayer that we say so many times at these conferences, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in you and in all your church teaches. Confirm and strengthen my faith. Lord, I do have faith. Help me in my lack of faith. Lord, I believe that you are here. To whom else would I go with my problems and with my questions and with my doubts and with my worries? And then we have to act like we believed it. If concealed in that little wafer is the one who is God from God and light from light and true God from true God, then he is deserving of all our adoration, of all our worship and of all our love. He is right there. The one who created everything is present in the tabernacle. The same Jesus with whom, let's not forget, we will spend the rest of eternity is right there in front of us, hoping that we'll catch his eye, hoping that we'll deign to give him a little bit of our time and a little bit of our attention. He understands that we're tired. He understands that we've got a lot, got a lot on our minds. He understands that perhaps in your own parish, the homily could have been a little bit more interesting and the music could have been a bit less naff. 
homilies should be good and music should be beautiful, but regardless, he's saying to us, forget about all of that for a moment and realize that I'm here with you. This is what's really important. He wants us to acknowledge his presence, first of all, with our hearts and with our minds, and then also with our bodies. He comes to us in a physical way and he asks us to respond to him in a physical way. He asks us to profess our faith with the way that we act, with bended knee and with bowed head, as if we were in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, because we are. When the mass is over, when everyone gets into their cars or heads over to the hall for tea and biscuits, Jesus remains. Jesus abides with us. The bread and wine, which are transformed, transubstantiated into his body and blood, don't go back to becoming bread and wine after the celebration. It's not like when we switch the lights on at the end of a play and the actors come out and the illusion is broken. No, Jesus remains. Jesus has pitched his tent among us and he will not leave us, yes, until the end of the age. And he invites us to respond by remaining with him, not obviously by bringing a sleeping bag and squatting in front of the high altar, no thank you. Of course, he understands that we have work to do and that we have exams to study for and people to meet. But he invites us to make time in our days, every day, to remain with him, to adore him, present on the altar, reserved in the tabernacle and in those moments after Holy Communion within our own bodies. He invites us to visit him if we can at odd moments during the day, to spend time in Eucharistic adoration when it's offered in our churches. If we pass a locked church, to silently acknowledge his presence, apologizing him, apologizing to him for being unable to visit him. The Eucharist is at the center of the life of the church and so likewise, it should be at the center of our lives. This conference has deepened uh, my own love and my own knowledge of the Holy Eucharist, listening to these talks and listening to those homilies and praying with the church's liturgy with fitting beauty and fitting solemnity, and especially adoring him uh, who is our life, truly present in the Blessed Sacrament, before the Mass, in the Mass, after the Mass, and in the tabernacle, his glory hidden, but truly present. I hope that you have had the same experience and that you will go back to wherever you're going, renewed in your own love for him, your own commitment to him, and your own desire to give your life to him. Traditionally, at these conferences, the last mass is offered for Father Holloway, the founder of the faith movement. And I'd like to give uh, the last word to him, writing precisely about the mass that we're about to celebrate and about Christ, our Eucharist. Father Holloway wrote, the Eucharist is more than the church's primary and central act of adoration. It is our primary act of contemplative insight into the real presence of God, and also our primary act of savored love of God in his real presence. The person of Christ in his mysteries is enveloped by the incense of the prayers of his people. Let it be the luminous cloud which shines in the young faces in the beautiful and hope-filled masses we celebrate at our conferences. The Eucharist is our powerhouse of sheer contemplative knowing, loving and savoring, in joy and in sorrow. Live it that way, teach it that way, love it, or rather love Christ our Eucharist in that way. It is our living Lord, it is his life in which we share, in which we sorrow, in which we love, in which we hope and to which we commend ourselves in our own consumatum est, in the last moments of life. Do not love it that way, love him that way, for the Mass 
is Christ our Eucharist. Amen. Thank you, Father, for that wonderful talk. Uh, we're going to have questions just now for Father Jamie's talk and also Father Stephen's talk yesterday, if you can cast your minds back. Um, so again, if you've got a question, I don't think we have mics, just put your hands up and I'll point to people and just speak loudly.